0: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: You know, the weather's getting warmer. So I, for one, am ready to say goodbye to my jackets and my sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. dot com slash forever 35 to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince dot com slash forever 35 hello and welcome to forever 35 a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves i'm kate spencer and i am dori shafrir and we are are not experts.
2: No, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums.
1: We're so glad you're here. I've got a serum report for us today.
2: I'm so excited.
1: Well, listen, before we get started, a friendly reminder that our website is Forever 35 Podcast. It's got links to everything we mention on the show. You can find us on Twitter at Forever 35 Pod. <clears throat> excuse me, Instagram at forever35podcast. And of course, there's the Forever 35 Facebook group where the password is serums. Indeed. And you can sign up for our newsletter at
2: forever35podcast.com slash newsletter. If you'd like to reach us, you can call or text us at 781 390 And you can email us at forever35podcast at gmail.com.
1: That's it. That's the stuff. That is the stuff. Okay. Should I launch into my serum update? Launch away. Okay. So, excuse me. I'm I'm drinking my smoothie and it's cold, and maybe it's resulting in flumminess. Um, So, you know, when we first started this podcast many moons ago, we used to do a little fun ditty where we compared a High-end product and a more affordable product. Just called it a simple high-low. <clears throat> you may we recall that we should bring that back. That was you fun. may recall I compared Dior uh, lip glow to a product called Baby Lips. Do you remember Baby Lips story? Oh yeah. <laughs> Do you remember what company in their right mind names a product Baby Lips? I, I mean. Cool. Mm. The answer is Maybelline, uh, but it's a very strange, very strange name for a product. But anyway, so we used to we would compare, right, essentially dupes. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about dupes at length on the show. So one of the biggest ones we get asked about is finding a dupe for Vintner's Daughter, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a high end luxury face oil Vintner's daughter active botanical serum. So the founders, the two founders of the website Skin School, which is a dupe site where you can go in, enter any a product and it will the algorithm churns out dupes for this for your product that you put into their little finder. Which is a super cool tool. The creators of Skin Cool, Skin School. <laughs> came out with their own botanical oil facial serum called Kin and Grail. And this product is essentially a dupe for Vintner's Daughter. Okay, Which they're now not, we're talking. They aren't hiding this. Like, essentially, they've, I, I find that they have very much been like, this is a dupe. You know, they're not like, Claiming otherwise, I think they essentially went into it like, hey, we can also create a luxury facial oil that isn't as expensive, you know, with not with no celebrity endorsements or, you know, digital marketing or whatever. So so we've got these two products, Vintner's Daughter and Kin and Grail. And so I have both and I've been trying. I, I've used Vintner's Daughter now for a few years on and off. I really like it. OK, OK. But I acquired Kin and Grail paid for it myself. And I've been using both, trying out both, um, trying out doing it where I would put one on one side of my face and one on the other. And today, I also went online and I broke down, I listed all the ingredients for myself so I could really take a look and ask myself, how similar are these products? And the answer is, so, that, so their claims are this, Vintner's daughter says it has 22 active botanicals, right? 22 ingredients. That's their big number. Ken and Grail are going with 23. Mm. <clears throat> so of all the ingredients that Vintner's daughter lists, well, let me pull up my Excel document that I made. These two products have 19 of the same ingredients. Ooh! This includes things like <clears throat> avocado oil, bergamot, 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 calendula, carrot oil, Evening primrose, frankincense, grapeseed, lavender, lemon peel, rosemary, sea buckthorn. I mean, it's it's a very extensive list. And if you look at their two websites, they're both very transparent. They they list their ingredients. So question. Sorry, question. Yes, yes go ahead.
2: Um are the similar ingredients the first f- ingredients or like the ones at the bottom?
1: Dory, that's an excellent question. Let me just tutelute back over to their websites to do a quick comparison because in my Excel Document. um, I had to do it alphabetically so I could add things up. So hold on, okay, hold on. Sorry, hold on. Dory shop. I have the botanical serum. Fuck. Where is the ingredient list? Uh, Here we go. Okay, okay. So you ask a great question. On the Vintner's Daughter website, they list the ingredients alphabetically. Ooh. Over on Kin and Grail's website, they seem to be listed in a random order. That that shouldn't begins, be ran- it shouldn't be random. It should be the most well, active ingredients are always at the beginning. Yes, yes, yes. So, But I mean, it's, a, it's not alphabetical is what I'm trying to say. And they begin with grapeseed oil, hazel seed oil, avocado oil, evening primrose oil sunflower seed oil which would make which would make sense is probably those are the the base oils of the product Hmm. just a guess as a non-expert
2: yeah i mean i still want to find out oh no they they do list it if you if you hover over ingredients on the vintners daughter
1: website oh yes here we go here we go you're right dory okay so we've got over I like vintners, i think they're like legally i mean yeah, you're this, right <laughs> they have to like list them in order of whatever okay so do you want to read these off and i can compare yes do you read vintners and i'll read kin and okay. grail okay okay grapeseed oil grapeseed oil hazelnut oil hazel seed oil hazelnut seed oil yes okay um citrus limon and then in parentheses lemon peel oil Okay, so Kin and Grill has that product, but it's at the end of their list. Their next one is avocado oil. Okay, that is Vintner's next one. Okay. Then we have lavender oil. We've got evening primrose over here in Kin and Grill, though lavender is a product, is an ingredient. Uh, Rose flower oil. So over here, we've got sunflower seed oil. Okay. Which I and then don't that- think Vintner's daughter has. And then... um. And what was the one that you just said? Evening primrose. Wait, I'm lost. No, now. you said evening primrose. No,
2: I'm reading. <laughs> I'm reading them. You're comparing them with what I'm saying.
1: Okay. 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 Go. Go.
2: Go. Okay. Uh,
1: carota sativa, carrot seed oil. The next one over here at Kin and Grail is calendula extract, but they do have carrot seed oil on the list. Okay, and then we come to evening primrose seed extract. I see now. What's interesting is that I don't know if the extract and evening primrose oil are the same thing. And I'm mm. going to guess that they're not. I don't think they are because
2: on, the, on this ingredient list, they distinguish between oil
1: and extract. I see. So now here over in Kin and Grail territory, uh-huh. they have rose extract and evening primrose oil. And then they also have something called dog rose fruit extract.
2: Okay, so the next one here is rose hip seed extract.
1: No rose hip over in Kin and Grail territory. Let me just and triple then- check against my Excel spreadsheet. Hold on. Yeah, there is no rose hip in. Then we have okay, a- Neroli flower oil. So this is one that is not in Kin and Grail. On my, okay. I have this in my Excel doc. Yep, that's the one that's that's just Vintner's. And then we have bergamot peel oil. Okay, hold on. Back to my Kin and Grail. Okay, they do have bergamot, but it's farther down the list. Okay. We're in uh, alfalfa extract territory now.
2: Okay. Uh, Vintner's has alfalfa leaf powder, but not for another few ingredients. So see, Next, like when yeah, I just want to pause this is for interesting. a second. When,
1: this is the nitty gritty of like, are these dupes? Eh? I mean, yes, but when you really get into what these things are, I don't I don't know like how much of a difference something's gonna make between an extract and an oil, et cetera, et cetera. Well, okay.
2: and also they don't have to put how much like we have no idea what the proportions are here. Exactly. It could be like ninety nine percent grapeseed oil and then like <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, we yes. don't know. Right. So it's really hard to say without knowing proportions. But what I will say is just based on this very, and we have not finished. I don't think we need to go through all I of the so, ingredients. But yes. But like, I think that the ingredients are similar enough that I could see why they would call it a dupe.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I will say that I found in – and I've used Vintner's Daughter way more than I've used Kin and Grail because I've used it for a few years now on and off. And I, it's a really – I think it's a beautiful face oil. But the Kin and Grail was very nice. It worked just fine. And, you know, I don't – I've never seen, like, massive changes in my – Skin texture or tone with either of these products. I will say with the Vintner's Daughter, I noticed my skin's much softer. But mm. the, here's my, the one hang up about the Kin and Grail product that if money were not an option, I would not, this is why I wouldn't buy it. Like if I could just spend money, you know, freely, you would I get, you I would, would get the Vintners. Vint- yes. For one very p- perhaps superficial, but to me, important. I cannot stand the smell of the Kin and Grail. I can't stand it.
2: Oh, and I don't like the smell of the Vintners.
1: Right. So maybe you but- would like this, but you're not a big smell person, period, in your not products. Not really. Yeah, and I haven't tried the Kin Grail, so I can't speak to it. It's got a sharper, kind of grassier scent, and the Vintners Daughter is a bit more floral. Actually, now that I'm inhaling them at the same time, they're not too off. But I I really, like, that was the, f- when I opened the Kin and Grail and put it on my face, I was like, oh. And I don't know. That's just me. That's just personal. You know, our noses are all different. So mm-hmm. but I will say, mm-hmm. you know, the price difference is one hundred and eighty five dollars versus fifty
2: nine. I mean, that's a pretty big price difference.
1: Yeah. So I think if you have been curious about the Kinnan Grail, it is worth giving it a try. Definitely. Okay. It seems TLDR. to me
2: try the kidding ground. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, I, again, it's like it to me, it seems unless you are like a person who needs to have the luxury item, you want to really dig into, you know, the process of how these products are made. Vintner's daughter has this, you know, whole story of April, the founder being a winemaker and where they get their ingredients. And they really, they do break it down on their website, you know, about you know, where they they source and yada, yada. Anyway, you can mm-hmm. really dig into these things. But if mm-hmm. you're just like, I want to try a face oil, try the cheaper one and see if you like it. There we go. Okay. Scientific experiment completed for the day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank
2: God. Anyway, um,
1: whew, that's it from me, Dory.
2: That, I mean, I'm glad we went there. Um. Okay, so I just wanted to throw this out there Should we set 2022 intentions?
1: Yeah I think we should I have one that I've Been thinking about and you know It's so funny because I have such a strong memory Of us doing an episode In January 2020 of like These are our year intentions And then you know the universe was like Actually fuck you Yeah here's a pandemic. Um, yeah, baby. So it's like it's like a little bit of like, you know, setting ourselves up for uh that eh, failure, but I don't think so. I think it's I think it's
2: good to just like put these things out there.
1: Yes, I'm with you. And I I have a I have a phrase that I landed on. I have a friend who picks a word or a phrase every year to focus on, and so I sometimes do that with her, and so I have my phrase but I'd be interested in setting like also like more concrete goal type intentions too.
2: Why don't we do that for next week's episode? Because next week is going to be kind of a pod sausage episode anyway, because we are bringing back the one and only Sam
1: Junio. Producer, dog, parent, model. What can't Sam do? I mean, truly. They are an icon. <laughs> they are a, a
2: renaissance human. Cool I mean tattoo person. Uh, yeah. Humorist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, influencer. The list, the list goes on.
1: we just love that old Sammy. <gasps>
2: um, but maybe we should have Sam
1: do their 2022 Ooh. attentions If they would
2: be up for that, we can, okay. we can run it by
1: them. Okay, well, we'll put it into the group text and see yep. what they say. <laughs> <laughs> all right i'm excited for this i am too because you know what i'm genuinely curious about what your intentions are
2: what if my intentions were like <laughs> move
1: to antarctica I would be so sad if you were like so my intention is to like move back to the east coast and stop podcasting or something like. <laughs> what uh, <laughs> like what if what if one of us just really comes in hot with news that we haven't told the other person wow that would be that would be a lot, but look, Kate, I wouldn't put it past you. I've got so many <laughs> secrets under my belt. Uh, don't you know, but there uh, is a really interesting um writer's residency in Antarctica, isn't there? I have a friend who did it, so that oh, could be yeah. an intention for you, Dory,
2: okay, I mean probably not, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs>
1: I, well, I look forward to that, and I also kind of can't wait to hear if listeners are setting intentions for themselves for the next year. I mean, and when we say intentions, like, this is loosey-goosey. We don't need any of this, like, New Year's resolution stuff unless it works for you.
2: hmm
1: You know? Mm-hmm. No judgment. hmm But also, if you just want to roll into the new year with no intentions, respect
2: that is to you. fine.
1: Yeah. We have no skin in this game no literally none none but our but whatever skin we do have in the game looks really good is what i'm saying
2: (laughs) um well let's read our guest's bio before we take a little
1: break such an interesting conversation coming up
2: we do um it's with Susan David, who is one of the world's leading management thinkers and an award-winning Harvard Medical, Harvard Medical School psychologist. Her number one Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Emotional Agility, based on the concept that Harvard Business Review heralded as a management idea of the year and winner of the Thinker's 50 Breakthrough Idea Award, describes the psychological skills critical to thriving in times of complexity and change. Susan's TED Talk on the topic of emotional agility has been seen by more than 8 million people. She is a frequent contributor to the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and guest on national radio and television. Named on the Thinker's 50, okay, blah, 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 we don't need to read this. Um, She is on the faculty at Harvard Medical School and is a co-founder of the Institute of Coaching. And Susan lives outside of Boston with her family. Um, there is just one thing I do want to note about her book. Book. We didn't really go into this in our conversation with her, but there is a chapter on weight loss in her book. Um, so if that is something that like you don't really want to read about, I just wanted to flag that for people.
1: Thank you, Dory, for doing that. I appreciate You're that welcome. you. You t- you checked that. Thank you.
2: Um, all right. Well, let's take a short break, and we will be right back with Susan.
1: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
2: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Kate, I feel like we are like barreling into summer.
1: It's happening so fast.
2: It is. And I feel like also with summer just come more Well, Susan, welcome to Forever 35. We're so excited to have you here and to talk about emotional agility and all kinds of other things.
0: Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you today.
2: Uh, so we start off uh, all of our interviews by asking our guests to talk about a self-care practice that they have. So is there something that you do regularly that brings you... that a- You would consider self care?
0: (laughs) Great question. Yeah, I I think one of the most uh, profound experiences that I've had around self care, which started very young, is actually being journaling. Um, And that process started uh, when I was around 15 or 16 and my father died. And I used journaling as a way to uh, process my experiences. And so, actually, that is both a self care practice, but also feeds very much into my work about uh, emotional health. And it's something that I do frequently.
1: Is that still a practice That is that a practice that you've maintained consistently since that teacher uh, that you, you've spoken about and you speak about in your book and in your TED Talk, that the teacher who kind of introduced journaling to you as a way to speak truth to your emotions? Um, is that still a practice you've maintained throughout your life?
0: Yeah, it's not something I do every day, but it's definitely an experience that I engage in when I'm mm. trying to process something that's going on. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that that process started, as I mentioned, when I was around 15 years old. And I think the way that I think of journaling is that it's a secret, silent correspondence with yourself and that that ability to do that, whether whether it's in a book or whether it's in other ways, internally, is truly helpful to our mental health and our well-being, as well as our ability to just move forward effectively in our lives and in our relationships. Can
1: I ask um, you? Oh, I'm sorry, Dory. Oh no, go I'm ahead,
0: gonna, Kate. Susan, I'm going to ask
1: you an, a tangential question that we is not in our question document, but it's something that's come up on our podcast, and I'm just wanted to pose it because I'm curious how you would handle it. We had a listener re- reach out to us and ask what to do with all the journals that they have written. Um, and I like how you phrase it as kind of a, a secret space because it's such a personal space, especially if we're really digging into like the most authentic feelings and emotions that we're having. Have you ever thought about what people should do with their journals, especially because they they can exist once we die?
0: <laughs> well, I'll I'll give you the nerd answer and then I'll give you the Susan Human answer. Yes. The Susan Human answer is that the journal that I started when I was fifteen and many since I've still got them. So in my mm. TED talk, I on the stage bought this little black book that was wrapped in daggy kind of, you know, plastic paper, which is how we wrapped our books in South Africa at school. And um that journal is one that I've still got and I, I just Even when I open it today, I engage with it and it really just is so helpful because it brings back memories, but also is it feels very alive even just decades later. And so I'm excited and and grateful that I kept it. Uh, The research part of journaling really suggests that when one journals, the best way to think about journaling is that you aren't journaling for an audience. Mm. So when, for instance, we've done... Uh, research that looks at telling someone to write. And a typical way we do this kind of journaling experiment is where you say to someone, write about something that feels emotionally evocative, and it's 20 minutes a day for three days. And literally after six months, we find that the people who've journaled have uh, high levels of well-being, high levels of goal attainment, I mean, really profoundly uh Important outcomes. But what's critical in these journaling studies is that when you are writing for a supposed audience, you don't actually get the same results as if you're just truly engaging in that correspondence with yourself. You're writing for yourself. And so I think it's a really important thing to think about when we're journaling. Are we journaling in a way that feels performative mm-hmm. or that feels like it is an engagement with the self? And when you're engaging with the self, that's when you really reap the rewards of journaling. And again, I just want to highlight here, because I know we started talking about self-care, is that journaling is simply a mechanism. Really what's happening in journaling is you are starting to put experience into language. You're starting to language about your experience. And there are a number of processes that happen there. You're starting to sense-make. You're starting to choose words carefully. You're starting to say, Ah, I'm not stressed. I'm actually disappointed. And there's an, a process that is happening in journaling. And journaling is one mechanism of that. But of course, therapy is another. Speaking with a really good friend is another. Mm. The, these are different mechanisms of, of processing emotional experience.
2: I loved your discussion of journaling in your book because, in part, because I feel like a lot of, um, Creative like creative guides suggest free writing or journaling, but they they don't really talk about any studies or yeah you know, any scientific reasons behind it. So it was really interesting to read all of these studies um, that have been done about the power of journaling. So that that was really interesting, and it also reminds me, or I feel like it does, kind of connect back to a lot of what you talk about in the book of kind of people being their own unreliable narrators. Um, and maybe journaling as a way to sort of like reframe your own narrative. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this narrative unreliability and what it stems from and besides journaling, how people can change that.
0: Yeah. So a little bit of uh, context as to why I came to journaling is I when I was 15, my father was 42 years old and he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And it was a very lonely experience for us as a family. After my father died, my mother was raising three children. Uh, the creditors were knocking because he hadn't been able to keep his small business going during his illness. And I experienced what I think so many listeners experience when one is going through strife or stress or grief, which is the world seems to have this expectation that you still put on a smile that you keep being strong and you keep going forward. And that was certainly my experience. My father died on a Friday. And I remember my mother telling me to go and say goodbye to him. And I I walked into the room and his eyes were closed. And I had this like palpable feeling that he knew that I was there, even though In a few hours, he would be gone. And this was this Friday of saying goodbye. And then on the Monday, my mom, with wonderful intentions, wanted to keep our routine. And so she packed me off to school and I picked up that backpack that I'd put down on the Friday. I went off to school and people would say to me, How are you doing? And I would, I would shrug and I would say to them, I'm okay. I'm okay. And I realized that. Uh, I was praised for being strong. I was praised for not dropping a single grade. I became the master of being okay. But in truth, what was going on for me is I was struggling. Um mm. I was unable to bear the full weight of my grief. Mm. And what that looked like for me is, as so many young girls do, I... Started to binge and purge literally and metaphorically unable to bear the weight of my grief. And so what we have is we have this narrative, which is a, which is a cultural narrative that says be strong, you know, keep going, um, keeping positive. If you negative, you're going to be termed toxic. You're going to lose your relationships. Like we have all of these narratives in society around this idea of positivity. And then I have this teacher and this teacher hands out these journals and she says, write, tell the truth, write like no one is reading. And the contrast of that is profound to me. This this experience that I'm having in the world and then this experience that I land up having with myself and with this teacher. And it went on for months where I would write in this journal. I would hand it in to her at the end of the day. And congruent with what I said earlier is you're not writing for an audience. She was very gentle and she was, she was very careful to write back to me in pencil. Basically, in, in my mind, saying to me, I see you, but it's your narrative. It's your story. You know, it was, it was just very beautiful. And so this forges then my career, my career, which starts looking at, this revolution, which is that on the one hand, we are told all of these things about mental, sorry, that is me. It's, it starts this revolution for me, this revolution, which says that we are told all of these things about well being and about emotional health, and that they sound good on the surface, just be positive. What could be bad with that? And yet, actually, what happens is over time, this actually, in ways that we can explore, undermines our resilience, undermines our well-being. And so this brings you to this question that you ask, which is this narrator. So we have an unreliable narrator in our culture that tells us what we should buy, what we should believe, what we should think, uh, that tells us that when we have difficult thoughts, that just like we don't like our cell phone and we can buy a new cell phone, we can just fix our difficult thoughts by being positive. So we've got an unreliable narrator that exists in our culture, but we also have unreliable narrators in our own minds. You know, every day we experience thousands of literally thousands of unspoken thoughts, thoughts like, am I good enough? Uh, am I being undermined? Am I cut out for this job or am I not cut out for this job? Is this all my life is meant to be? Is this relationship going anywhere? We we have thousands Mm -hmm. of short thoughts Mm -hmm. and we also have thousands of these emotional experiences. And so what often happens is we have these natural experiences, these human experiences. But what often happens is we start treating a thought as fact. Mm or an emotion as fact, we'll start saying, because I had the thought that I'm unworthy, it means I'm unworthy. It means I'm not good enough. Because I had the thought that I'm being undermined, now I'm going to shut down. Mm -hmm. And so a really important part of my work on emotional agility is this crucial awakening to the recognition that There is nothing inherently actually good or bad with any thought or any emotion. In fact, these were evolved for us as a human species to help us to make sense of the world. Charles Darwin described how our emotions help us to communicate with other people and ourselves. So there's nothing good or bad about this essential part of ourselves. What starts to happen, however, is we sometimes get hooked on a thought on an emotion or even on a story, you know, sometimes a story that was written on our mental chalkboards when we were five years old
2: Mm.
0: about whether we're good enough or creative or leaders. And when we start treating that as a fact as opposed to a thought, Mm -hmm. that's when we start um, engaging in an unreliable uh, narration of our life story because what's starting to happen is the thought or the story is starting to own us rather than we owning it.
1: So, how do we get out of that? How do we reverse course? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, there are a couple of really important components of emotional health and emotional well being. And often, when people ask me, you know, what is emotional agility? What do you mean by emotional agility? Mm. I'll say to them, you know, at at its core, at its core, my work is really about being a healthy human being. It's about seeing ourselves. I, I grew up in South Africa, and there's this beautiful greeting you hear every day on the streets of South Africa. It's it's a Zulu greeting. Uh, people will say "Sawubona," "Yebo Sawubona," and it basically means hello. But when "Sawubona" is literally translated, it its intention is powerful. It means I see you. Mm. And by seeing you, I bring you into being. And my work at its core, emotional agility at its core, is about a sour to the self. It's about seeing the self. It's about dropping the struggle with whether we should or shouldn't feel a particular thing. And so emotional agility in a short form is about these skills that help us to be healthy human beings in the world, but in its longer form, it's really the skills that involve our ability to be compassionate with ourselves, uh, to be curious with our experience, and to be courageous. And so I can go into some of those skills in a more granular way if that would be helpful in terms of how we dig ourselves out of that unreliable narration.
2: I think so. I mean, I don't, I don't think you need to recount everything that you talk about in your book, but maybe just like a brief overview, I think would be helpful for listeners.
0: So uh, I think one of the first and most important is that, as I've already spoken to, we have this idea that we have good or bad thoughts or good or bad emotions. And what often comes bound into that is that if we feel sadness or grief or anxiety, disappointment, stress, that these are bad emotions and we should push them aside. And so what we start doing is we start then hustling with ourselves. We start, it's almost like if you imagine that these uh emotions are part of our normal experience, but we start Saying, I'm not allowed that emotion, or I'm not allowed this emotion, I'm not allowed that emotion. And so what we start doing is we start engaging in an internal war with ourselves, an internal struggle. And a really important part of emotional health and well-being is literally dropping the rope. So stop judging yourself for having a difficult emotion. You know, mm-hmm. stop judging yourself for being disappointed <laughs> when. You didn't get the job that you were after. It's okay to be disappoint, disappointed. It's human to be disappointed. And the idea that we should take our disappointment and instead try to persuade ourselves that actually we should be grateful that at least we've got a job is mm-hmm. unhelpful. So a really important part of emotional agility is the recognition that when we actually drop the rope, and what I mean by dropping the rope is an acceptance Of our difficult, messy emotions, even the ones that feel uncomfortable is a cornerstone to resilience and to thriving. And within that comes a very important uh, acknowledgement, which is that it's hard to human. It's hard to human. It's, it's hard to recognize that your love has evolved and no longer feels alive. You know, it's hard to feel an experience of stress at work. And so a very important part of emotional skill is uh elevating compassion, self-compassion. And, you know, what is self-compassion? It's like for every person who's listening, if you just recognize that, you know, maybe you're 35, maybe you're 40, maybe you forever 35, whatever mm-hmm. you are. Um, but but if we just close our eyes for a moment we can recognize that whoever we are and however old we are there is actually a 5 year old inside of us and that 5 year old is tapping you on the shoulder and i invite people listening to ask themselves what is the 5 year old telling you it needs mm. Is it saying that it needs love or spontaneity or joy or self-care? Like, what is that five-year-old telling you? And so when you start doing this, what you're starting to do is you're starting to engage with yourself in a way that is compassionate. And this is very powerful and very important. So... Those are two strategies that start enabling us to show up to our difficulty emotions. There are also some very powerful strategies that help us to move forward from our difficulty emotions that we can explore as well, if that's helpful.
2: Um, I mean, I feel like we could talk about all of this for hours, and I would, I would be wrapped. Um, but. Um, <laughs> I'd like to talk about happiness as it relates to emotional agility. Um, something, a, a quote that struck me from your book was when you write, the paradox of happiness is that deliberately striving for it is fundamentally incompatible with the nature of happiness itself. And yes, that, that, that is a paradox. And it kind of sounds like, you know, when people give advice to single people, that's like, just stop looking for love and you'll find it. Um, <laughs> and so, I'm wondering what has your research shown actually leads to happiness, but also and I think you kind of answered this in your book, but I'm curious to hear what you say. Like, is that the wrong question that
0: you know, should we even be asking that question? Yeah, so so that is a great prompt. Uh again, we, we live in a world that seems to really focus on this idea of happiness and positivity. And it, it sounds great on the surface. And just to be clear, I'm not anti-happiness. Actually, like (laughs) I I edited a 90 chapter handbook (laughs) called The Oxford Handbook of Happiness. (laughs) So what I, what I am curious about, what I am interested about in my research is authentic, real happiness. Because of course, what happens, firstly, when we start focusing on a goal of happiness, all I want is to be happy what it does is it it brings with it some uh really really detrimental aspects to our well-being mm. the first is that um when you set a goal of happiness it's not like you ever reach a point where you say aha i'm i'm happy that's like checked off my checklist right. <laughs> you know <laughs> now let me go and do something else right. so what happens is when we have a goal of happiness, it's, it's a false goal. We, we can mm. never reach the point of having achieved it. Mm. And so we are in a constant cycle of feeling that we aren't good enough. Life isn't good enough. And that, that somehow we are letting ourselves down. Mm. And that in itself, what that starts to do is it starts to engage us in, um, almost a, um, struggle that's almost like quicksand, which is the more we try to be happy, the less happy we feel, the more mm-hmm. we try to be happy. And it's this never ending thing. And also what we start doing is we start engaging with our emotions in ways that I described earlier, which is we become judgy towards them. Mm-hmm. So we'll say something like, um, oh, I'm feeling sad, but I'm not allowed to feel sad. Let me feel happy. Right. Or, G-. So then what are we doing? When we do that, we are literally segmenting off all of the human emotions that are core to helping us to adapt and thrive in the world. Mm. When you are in a job that you are unhappy in because you feel bored, as an example, that boredom, that boredom is not... Somehow you being negative, that emotional experience of boredom is a signpost that something you care about, something that you value Mm. isn't being addressed. And so when you just push aside the boredom and keep going, it's not like your job's going to suddenly be a happy job. What's going to happen is you're going to turn around in five years time and you're still going to be in the unhappy job um, because you haven't used the Data that your emotions are signposting, you know, our emotions contain data. And so a really important part of emotional agility is recognizing, you know, boredom signals that I need more growth. Mm. Uh, Grief signals that there's, there's love that I've had in my life. And it's a prompt to think of the memories of that person and to recognize the, the bothness of the love and the loss and to hold that person close in my heart. Anger, you know, anger is often seen as a a bad emotion, Mm -hmm. but there is no change that ever happened in our lives or in our world without experiencing anger because anger often signals that we care about justice or equity or that a particular value of ours is being transgressed. And and even, you know, when I think about a value or or an emotion that we might have of like something like loneliness, you might say, well, what is the data, what is the value that is being signposted by something like loneliness? Because we can be lonely when we're at home 247 in a pandemic. Uh loneliness can even if we're surrounded by people. Loneliness is signposting that we value intimacy and connection. Mm. And that even if we're in a relationship, we can still be lonely. And so that loneliness is saying you need to move towards the value. You need to see mm. if you can garner more intimacy and connection. And so as becomes clear when we focus only on one emotion of or one experience of happiness as a goal, what we actually do is we shrink our lives and we actually become less resilient because we aren't then able to adapt to the world as it is, not as we wish it to be, which is a dazzling and painless world, but a world that is a world in which difficulty and heartbreak are built into the agreement with life.
2: So we're just going to take a short break and we will be right back. Okay, we're back.
1: Susan, can I ask you about the concept of the gratitude journal? Which is not to, not to make this all about Dude. journaling, Dude. but you know, in, in reading your book and listening to a lot of the work that you've done, We've talked. We have. Ta- I I like a gratitude journal, and I've done one. But I, I've started to, you know, like I started to kind of question the intention behind it, and have begun to wonder if they are actually a tool of toxic positivity. So I would love to kind of hear your thoughts um, about this practice.
0: Yeah. So toxic positivity and the tyranny of positivity is something that I explore a lot in my work and did in my TED talk as well. And really, you know, what is uh, toxic positivity? And this feeds into the question. Toxic positivity is basically forced false positivity. That by definition is really what toxic positivity is. So it's not a natural experience of joy or a natural experience of gratitude. It's forced false positivity. And in our culture, it is... Culturally endorsed denial and avoidant coping strategy. Mm. So, Mm. toxic positivity, when you say to yourself, just be positive, or when you say to someone else, just be positive, what it is at its core is it is an avoidant coping strategy wrapped up in rainbows and sparkles, but it's an avoidant coping strategy. And so then to your question, when you are experiencing a natural occurrence of joy or a natural experience of gratitude, when you look at your life and you go, oh, my goodness, I'm grateful for all that I've got, and I want to acknowledge that, that is very powerful and it's very positive. But when you open that gratitude journal and basically you've had a really crappy day mm-hmm. with a really difficult experience or when you are struggling with something and what you do is you push aside that difficult experience in the service of, oh, how can I just be grateful? What you are doing is you are using a gratitude journal as a proxy, as, as a mechanism for Forced false positivity. And again, what are you doing here? You are losing the data that might exist about why your day has been bad, what you're struggling with in your relationship, how you need to address it, what difficult conversations you need to have. There's a whole lot of information that comes to you when you've had that crappy day, that if you just sit with it, don't judge it, if you sit with it, if you name it, if you say to it, anxiety, what are you trying to tell me? Sadness, what are you trying to tell me? There's so much learning and power that comes from that.
1: I I love your point of view on this, and I I also like how you kind of address. Uh, I think this was, I was listening to your interview with Brene Brown, and you were talking about how. um you know, just dealing with your father's terminal illness and this suggestion that, you know, all people need to combat an illness is positive thinking. And you didn't just think positively enough and this whole kind of narrative. Um, and it's something I heard, my mom also had terminal cancer. And so I've heard this a lot and I know she heard it a lot. And I would love to know what kind of tools you offer people on how to respond when someone uses this kind of language, um, to suggest that you could just get out of a very difficult situation by changing your thinking or your frame of mind, and I'm saying this noting that Dorian and I often use the term to reframe the narrative of a situation, but <laughs> but I think it's I think there's a difference, but I would love to kind of hear what you what you suggest to people as a response or or a way just to deflect from having this kind of very frustrating in my experience conversation.
0: Yeah, when someone says to you, just be positive, really what they're saying is my comfort is more important than your reality. You know, that's really what they're saying because they're saying at some level, I can't metabolize your pain and therefore I'm just going to you something that feels like a platitude. I'm not going to acknowledge that it's a platitude mm. because everyone says <laughs> it, and mm. and it sounds right. It sounds legitimate. But you know, in truth, if as as a friend who died of uh, cancer said to me, she was like, you know, if if just being positive would somehow cure my cancer, believe me, I would be positive. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but clearly not going to work. And and if we think about the other aspect of this narrative, what are you basically saying? What is the the other more insidious aspect of saying that to someone? What you are actually saying is that somehow, at some level, you are responsible for your cancer. That Mm. your cancer is there or your illness or your difficulty or your breakup is there because You haven't found a way to be positive enough. Mm. And it is, it makes me so angry. It is so outrageous. It's such a profound form of unseeing another person's pain. And so when we are in difficulty and people do that to us, sometimes they're not doing it because of ill intent. Sometimes they're doing it because... That's what they've heard. That's what everyone says to them. Mm. And so it can just be really powerful to say, I just need someone to be with me right now. Please hold space for me. You know, I don't need solutions. I am just looking for connection. If you're looking for where to help, you know, here's some things that would be really meaningful to me. These obviously it's going to depend on the relationship. Yeah. it's obviously going to depend on the context, but um i think I think there's there's power in in shaping the level of or the rules of engagement around this, because when someone's going through an experience like cancer as an example, but there are many other examples of this. And when everyone around you is telling you to be be positive, what it really means is that these moments that you have that could be moments of authenticity and connection actually become moments of fakery. Mm. And helping people to help you, helping people to understand what your needs are in that moment can be very powerful for both you and the person.
1: That Ugh.
2: that makes me think about your chapter on um, raising emotionally agile children, um, because I have a toddler and, you know, I think a lot about having an authentic connection to him. Um, I did think it was interesting because I, I actually think in the five years since you published your book, a lot of um, parenting... Advice, experts, et cetera, have really shifted towards what you write about um in that chapter um and in your book, like uh, letting you know letting people feel their emotions, dropping the rope, growth mindset these are all things that come up now constantly in a lot of these um parenting especially parenting small children circles, so I don't know if that's a world that you are as intimately familiar with as i am but um but what i'm wondering is you know i feel like it's inevitable we will find some other way to fuck up our children but (laughs) (laughs) do you think it is it is it possible to raise a generation of more emotionally aware kids and then what does their adulthood look like like I imagine it would be less there'd be less of an audience for self-help books but um, beyond that you know kind of what what does that look like
0: Yeah this is a really important question uh, there's been since I wrote emotional agility but but even beyond there's been a lot of uh, recognition around this need for emotion coaching uh in children and I think what also becomes really important though is that it's not only about showing up to your children's difficult emotions. There's there's also some foundational skills that come with that, mm. and it's the same. It's the same for us as adults. So, for instance, um, it's not just about, oh, I want to approach myself with a level of compassion and like in the struggle by dropping the rope, there's also some core emotional skills. So for instance, uh, one of the things that I found in my work, uh, when I when we talk about difficult emotions is we'll often say something like I'm stressed.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I'm
0: stressed is very common as an umbrella label to describe what it is we're feeling. But there's a world of difference between stress and disappointment. Stress and that knowing, knowing feeling that things aren't going according to plan. So when we go beyond initial label, that's an umbrella label, and we say, what are some more granular experiences? What are some more granular emotions that I'm having here? Mm. This is, this is what in psychological terms is called emotion granularity. And now we're moving beyond just showing up to difficult emotions. We're actually starting to develop Profoundly important emotional agility capacities. And these are capacities that help you again to get a distance from your narrative to, to create that really important space so that you can say, okay, I'm feeling unworthy or I'm feeling overwhelmed or I'm feeling stressed or whatever it is. Who do I want to be as a person in this moment? You know, that beautiful Viktor Frankl uh, sentiment, that idea that between stimulus and response, there is a space. Mm-hmm. And in that space is our power to choose. And in that choice lies our growth and our freedom. So when we are hooked, when we, when we treat a thought or emotion like fact, there's no space between stimulus and response. I'm feeling undermined. I'm going to shut down. My husband's starting in on the finances. I'm going to leave the room. Mm-hmm. And so the first aspect that I spoke about, which is the showing up to emotion. Yes, there's been a lot of, uh, recognition that these are really important. Mm-hmm. I, Don't feel we are nearly at the stage in our organizations, in our parenting, in any aspect of the way we are currently approaching the fragility and the complexity of the world that we live in and the world that our children will grow up in that actually equips children, not just with this idea that, oh, my sadness feels fine or it's okay to be sad, but that actually there are core emotional skills that help us to navigate that sadness. So as an example, uh, we know when we label emotions in a more accurate way, That, that allows us to understand the cause of the emotion and also how we might want to respond to it, who we might want to be. The same with a child. When a child comes home from school and says, mommy, no one would play with me today. And you see your child is upset. And so you, you hold space for the child and you connect with them. Yes, that is a very important part of that sabobana of seeing the child. But there are crucial skills that go beyond that. Mm. Helping the child, for instance, to label his or her emotions, to label their emotions. This is critical. We know that children as young as two and three years old who are able to start differentiating between sad versus mad, that those children actually have longer-term well-being. It's really important for a child who says, mommy jack wouldn't invite me to his birthday party and i'm so angry now i'm not going to invite him to mine that child has no space between stimulus and response Mm. but as a parent if you help that child to recognize yeah you feel mad you feel angry but it sounds like you also feel sad so so you're helping the child to label emotion. The other thing that we're doing is we're helping the child to recognize that our emotions contain signposts mm. to the things that we care about. So in this example, it sounds like you feel really sad because friendship is important to you. Who do you want to be as a friend? How do you want to go to school and act as a friend? What does friendship look like to you? What we are starting to do here is we are starting to help our children not just to show up to their emotions but actually to develop their moral compass, Hmm. their values, their sense of who they are in the world, their capacity to feel an emotion but also not be driven by the emotion. Our emotions are data. They're not directives. And so to the question that you ask, I think there's been – Small strides that are made in the showing up piece. But I think that one of the greatest tragedies of our time is that these kinds of emotional agility skills are still considered soft. Mm-hmm. They, they are still sidelined. They are still seen as gendered. Mm-hmm. You know, they're still seen as feminine in contrast to mathematics and strategy and logic. And so they denigrate it. But but for the child who's growing up in a world in which the pandemic that they've experienced is going to be probably the first of many Mm -hmm. in which their hearts are going to get broken, Mm. these skills are the skills of the future.
1: Did you take notes story? Does that answer
0: some <laughs> <Yeah. question? laughs>
2: no, I mean, it, it's, it, these are all, uh, these are all things that really resonate with me. So thank you for, for raising them.
1: Susan, I have a question. Um, one thing I've noticed about your work is that, and this I know is a constant conversation culturally, is that it can be applied to weight loss. And my interest as a person over the last few years has been, really rejecting the cultural conversation of pressure to lose weight um, and rejecting diet culture. And I'm curious how you can take a lot of the values about which you speak and use them to kind of reject a lot of these larger cultural pressures, the pressure to look a certain way, the pressure to behave a certain way, or as the aforementioned, this kind of pressure to prescribed to a certain body image. Um, I I find that that, you know, like that challenge, this idea of self-comparison to another person is hard enough and you speak to that, but how about when you're going up against a message that is larger than just one person?
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's a really important question. One of the, one of the aspects of emotional agility is, is not just about, um, as I mentioned, showing up to difficult emotions, it's not just about creating distance from yourself and your emotions, you know, in terms of what are the data, what's the emotion signposting, Um, but it's also about starting to connect with the heartbeat of your why, Mm. the heartbeat of your values and who you want to be as a person Mm. and how you want to be living your life. And we not only live in a world of never-ending, in-your-face social comparison, Uh, but we also live in a world in which, as human beings, we are primed to engage in what is called emotion contagion. And emotion contagion is really this idea that when one person's upset, often many people will get upset. When one person is quickly, you know, running to buy toilet paper in a race, you know, mm-hmm. to the toilet paper aisles, other people mm-hmm. are going to be doing it. Uh, we know, for instance, in large-scale epidemiological studies, that in someone, if someone even in your network gets divorced that you are more likely to get divorced. And really what I mean by bringing up this this research, this combination of comparison and social contagion, is that we as human beings are primed actually firstly to look at what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. So what other cars people are driving, what shows they're watching, how they're spending their time, like all of these kind of things. And we are primed to then start adopting or almost mimicking those kinds of behaviors and those kinds of experiences. That gets exacerbated a thousandfold when we're starting to see this on, on social media because now, of course, no longer am I just comparing myself to some geeky kid that. You know, was with me in eighth grade and is now driving around in a Ferrari and is just 21. I'm now comparing myself to 50,000 of these people. And so a really important part of emotional agility is the, the groundedness that happens in the question that Kate asked, which is, who do I want to be as a person? What is important to me? And so, for Kate, for you, it might be that actually, this is a kind of cultural narrative, diet culture. I don't want to be a part of it. What's Mm -hmm. much more important to me is whatever, moving my body, being healthy in a different way or experiencing my body, how I feel. And what we know is that if you spend even 10 minutes, we get back to journaling again, even 10 minutes affirming your values actually writing down, this is what's important to me. This is how I want to be living. Then what that actually does is it primes you that when you experience a lot of these counterforces in your environment, it helps to keep you grounded with, mm-hmm. but these are my values. This is who I want to be. This mm-hmm. is what's important to me. So we're never going to do away with with cultural narratives that we don't like, or that we don't agree with, or that are even harmful because they exist in our environment. What we can do is we can become very grounded in ourselves. And then when you experience these kinds of narratives, you aren't, you know, jumping in, in a reactive way, rather you Staying in your own wisdom in a way that feels really values based and intentional.
2: Um, I, I love that, and I love this idea of kind of of staying in your own wisdom. That that should be that's a good kind of guide, I think, in general. Um, well, Susan, I, like I said, I think I could talk. We could talk to you for hours, but um, this is. Been a really, really, really lovely conversation. And thank you so much for talking to us and for the work that you do. Um, Where can our listeners find you?
0: Thank you so much. It's been lovely speaking. So people can find me in my book, Emotional Agility. Uh, I've got a free quiz that around 150,000 people have taken, and that's at susandavid.com forward slash learn. And uh my TED talk, The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage, is a great introduction both to my work but as well as to very practical strategies around emotional agility.
2: Yes, I I you have a quote I, you know, I, we're gonna let you go, but you have a quote in your TED talk that is only dead people never get unwanted or inconvenienced by their feelings that was
1: like whoa,
2: <laughs> like that, that that was a <sighs> That was a big one. So please watch Susan's TED Talk. It's really, really good.
0: Um, Thank you, Susan. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been truly amazing being with you.
2: Well, Kate, we talked about setting 2022 intentions, but in the more short term, the more immediate term, (laughs) let's talk about our weekly intentions. Um, (sighs) I mean, I said last week that I wanted to refocus on writing. I did not get any writing done this week, so I did not refocus on writing. I kind of had a... I had like a recovery week, I think.
1: That's so good. That is so important, Dory. Oh, thank you, Kate. You
2: really enunciated important.
1: (laughs) Well, I, I love how you phrased that, a recovery week.
2: Well, you know, I... I talked about this a bit last week, but, you know, we got home from a wonderful but exhausting week away, and I was sick for a few days, and then Henry got sick, and so I I feel like I've sort of, and and Matt was back at work, and so I, I feel like I've been a little bit, like scrambling a tad and so i i needed to just kind of like take a beat this week i did get a lot of piano practice in though because it was it was relaxing but um otherwise otherwise yeah um so this week we're going real practical okay i just want to and i feel like this has been an intention of yours in the past as well but i just i just want to clean off my desk
1: oh my gosh dory I'm so with you. Just looking around me right now. Oh, yeah. It's such a mess.
2: It's it's a mess. There's just there's just stuff on here that doesn't need to be on here.
1: Tell me right now the most random thing on your desk and I'll tell you mine.
2: Okay, great question. Um I mean, like where to even start? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I know. I have Henry's. I have a toothbrush and toothpaste of Henry's. <laughs>
1: That's a really good one. That is a really, really good one.
2: Thank you so Uh, much.
1: Mine is a miniature muffin cup that I ate a like frozen chocolate fat bomb that I made out of weeks Uh ago. Very good. Very good. Uh, And the little muffin, the silicone muffin cup has just been sitting at my desk, you know, for a few weeks. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. I could easily walk it a few steps to my kitchen to wash it, but... Why do that when it could just sit at my desk? Yeah. I mean, you know, why? Who needs it? I also just didn't want to say to you that I actually feel like you did do writing this week. Well, I did some freelance writing. That's true.
2: You're right. I did. I did some. I did some freelance writing. I mean, maybe you're thinking
1: about like your passion project.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about book stuff, but you're right. I did. I did file a story this week that's impressive. Thank you, Kate. Thank you so much. Um, How about you? Okay.
1: Well, last week, as we know, I focused on nail biting. And then of course, I painted my nails with nail glue and I had to remove that. And now I'm, I'm, it's been good. I will say it's been good. I've been kind of just kind of taking more care of my nails, you know, like trimming my Mm -hmm. cuticles and using my jojoba oil and mime gloves every night and I don't know. I feel kind of good about it. And I also have noticed like one thing I've practiced is like, I'm still kind of biting them, but I also will just be like, you know what? We don't do that right now. Mm. Okay, brain. And just kind of like reset. Mm. I try to reset. So I do have kind of like a little cheerleader in my head that's like, hey, remember, we're trying not we're trying to take a break from eating these nails all day long. All right, okay. and here's my here's my intention for this week. It's coming up, it's the last week that my children are in school. Mornings are kind of a, a slog in our house like I'm having a hard time getting out of bed. I'm tired in the morning, my kids are tired. So, my intention for this week is just to get up 15 minutes earlier than I normally do. Like get up and get out of bed. Mm. And not You know, in the morning, I'm like heating my broken hand and I'm like, you know, looking at my phone. And so I'm trying, I want to just start my day 15 minutes earlier. That's it. Just to kind of get everybody moving so we're not doing the like crazy last minute, you know, rush out of the house every day, which is so draining and it's like not good for anybody.
2: No, it's not. It's not. (sighs) Well, Kate, this has been. A delight. Dory, for chatting with me. No, I mean, thank
1: you. Truly. No, no, you. No. No. No, no, you. You. I'll take it. Fine. I'll take it. Fine. (sighs) Fine. All right. Well, listen, everybody. Forever 35 is hosted and produced by us, Dory Shafriar and Kate Spencer. And it's produced and edited by Sam Junio. And Sam Reed is our project manager. And our network partner is ACAST. And our listeners are you. We're so grateful for you. Thanks for listening.
0: I love that. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Dory. Bye. (laughs)